Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series from canvas to screen on select Saturdays in March. Enjoy a film that captures the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art, including Metropolis, Days of Heaven, and Marie Antoinette at NortonSimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon-Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. So good that production will be resuming. It's wonderful news. Tentative deal, of course, as you heard, reached between the AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA, the union representing actors who've been on strike for a record-setting 118 days. Still needs to be approved by the board of uh, SAG-AFTRA and by rank-and-file members of the union, but that would appear to be a formality. So definitely some good news. In fact, President Biden, just a short time ago, weighing in, saying uh, that this is an example of how collective bargaining works. The president said, I applaud SAG-AFTRA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers for working together in good faith towards an agreement that allows our entertainment industry to continue telling the stories of America. The president added, when both sides come to the table to negotiate in earnest, they can make businesses stronger and allow workers to secure pay and benefits that help them raise families and retire with dignity. I'd like to hear from you. If you're someone whose life has been upended because of not just the SAG after a strike, but the combined period of shutdown for Hollywood, which has been extraordinary, a uh, hundred, uh, what, 90-some days of total shutdown or close to uh, total shutdown. Share with us that experience. We'd like to hear from you at 866-893-5722. 866 866- Eight nine three five seven two two. You can also email your thoughts, your feelings this morning upon the tentative agreement being reached. At comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And certainly there has been some production taking place because of waivers, but overwhelmingly the business uh, has been shut down, affecting the lives of thousands of people who work in this industry. With us, senior editor at Deadline, Dominic Patton. Dominic, good morning. Um, I would assume that uh, there's a lightness in people's steps all throughout the industry today. Oh, I think certainly so, Larry. I mean, this is going to be a long road to getting things back on track. You know, the California economy took about a $6.5 billion hit. Over 45,000 entertainment jobs were lost, and that doesn't even go into the vendors and people who supply the industry, which make up so much of the, the businesses here in Southern California. But this is the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. And I think that what we're seeing, we don't have many details yet about the deal. We have a few, but we don't have many. We'll know that tomorrow when the board votes on it. But this is clearly not just a three-year contract for the Actors Guild. This is a generational change in an industry that is always about change. But I think this is as significant from what we know as what we saw last time the WGA and SAG went on strike back in 1960 when Ronald Reagan ran the union when they brought in residuals, which was a game changer. 
I think what we're seeing is that. This is a deal for the 21st century, from what we understand, and the 21st century seems to be kicking off pretty good. Well, and let's talk about just the general uh, issues uh, where they reached agreement. I know we don't have specifics, but what does it appear actors are going to have um, when it comes to residuals for streaming? Well, we're going to see what one thing we do know is, is for the first time, there is going to be a success based compensation system for streaming. So cast members of shows that have done very, very well. I'm going to say Stranger Things. You can say something else if you like. Um, They're going to see now added money, which that was just not even something that was considered before. And just as recently as a couple months ago, people were saying that was just ludicrous. It would never happen. We're going to see increases in minimums. We don't quite know what the specific figure is. The WGA in their deal got a 5% increase in minimums. We know that SAG were originally asking for 11%. The studios bumped their offer up to 7%. My understanding is they met somewhere in the middle, so maybe we're looking at eight or nine. We'll know that tomorrow when the board votes. And of course, the real stickler, AI protections. What we understand is that there are significant protections now put in place with the notion of informed consent being the buzz, the, the buzz term here, to make sure that actors and their, and their likenesses are protected and their rights to their likenesses are protected. And from what we understand, that also doesn't have to just do with people who are living and working in the industry, but also those who have passed on so that their likenesses, well, they will have to have rights will have to be granted to the studios to use those likenesses going forward. And so I assume when we're talking about the, the, the protections of their uh, images, their likenesses, that that means if they're used, they're going to have to be compensated to some degree. Oh, very much so, Larry. I mean, I think, again, the specifics the Guild has not yet revealed, but my understanding of them, Deadline's understanding of them, is this is very much going to be a project-specific um, way of doing things. So if you are in said movie and they are going to re- they want to use your likeness, they want to do reshoots, et cetera, et cetera, they're going to have to make a, an agreement. You're going to have to consent to this, and there's going to be compensation given for it. Just like in many ways, you know, though we're talking about a technology which is clearly going to become one of the dominant forces in the industry, in many ways, and again, with the caveat that the, the details are yet to be entirely revealed, this is going to be almost like, you know, you got a job. You're working on a show. You're getting paid for that show. And so people are going to be compensated for the work they do and the work that their likeness has done. We're talking with senior editor at Deadline, Dominic Patton, with us. We're talking about the tentative agreement between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP. I'd like to hear from you if you're a member of the union, if you work in production or you work in a business dependent on production taking place, your thoughts on the agreement and how your life has been changed by this extended period of either curtailed or um, uh, severely restricted production. 866-893-5722-866-893-5722. You can also email us, atcomments at com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, let's see. We have uh, Zira in South Los Angeles says, my partner's in IATSE, even though he wasn't on strike. He hasn't had much work. He's had a couple of gigs, been receiving unemployment, but that's it. As soon as he heard the news, he sent the deadline article to everyone in my family. I'll bet he did, Zira. Thank you so much. Let's talk with Jackie and Monrovia. You're on Air Talk. I understand both you and your husband are members of that union. That's correct. We are vested members. That means that we've made a certain amount of money over the course of our careers. 
to protect our pension. But sadly, for the first time in 30 years, we did not meet the cap, either of us, uh, to keep our health insurance. Um, there will be a COBRA thing that we can do first of the year, but there isn't anything to protect and say, well, how do you make your earnings uh, to keep your health insurance protected? Um, so this in it impacts my two daughters, my husband and myself in our late 50s. Um, we're thrilled about this agreement, but our income over the last 15 years since the uh, onset of streaming and missing things in the last agreement with the strike has meant that we've gone from making $500,000 as a family to making less than $100,000 as a family. And we are both working actors who have spent our careers um, giving to the industry and to teaching other artists. We now both teach people how to be artists, but we are part of that late 50s group that are just getting crushed in this. And in 2021, our beautiful union made it so that the people of this age group, we are vested and we'll get a pension, but our health insurance will not be protected as we go forward. And that is a, a new change as well. So Jackie, there's a lot on the table that's great here. Yeah, Jackie, I'm so sorry about. So how long do you think you're going to have to go on the COBRA bridging of your health benefits until you'll again qualify for sag after health there isn't any, we don't know. It really depends on how things come back in the industry. But as I said, our income over the last 10 years for sure has just taken a huge hit. My husband was the lead on a show called Outsiders, yeah. a Peter Tolan show, and he made $55,000 as a series regular. Uh, that's before taxes. That's for 11 episodes. And that was before agent and manager fees. That was a streaming show that was on in 2017. That's the reason why we are striking, because he's got an IMDb page as long as your right arm, but you can't live like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I was on Hot Off the Grill with Bobby Flay on the Food Network. You cannot live on uh, two people supporting a family in these industries and in New York, Los Angeles, or anywhere in between on what was happening before the strike. So it's great that we're striking, but we also need to take care of how do we build uh, with the Entertainment Community Fund, formerly the Actors Fund, how do we support artists and support unions around the industry so that we can really have what you said at the beginning of the show, sustainable careers in the arts, Good. which Jackie. we know through LAS supports our whole society. Jackie, I, I so much appreciate your call. Uh, I wonder, though, given how short seasons are now for streamers, you're talking about this series Outsiders that your husband was a regular on and just 11 episodes in a season, is even with the raising of minimums and of success-based additional payments for actors who are working on streamed series, is it still going to provide uh, living compensation for actors? Well, it hasn't for some time, but we're hoping we're going in the right direction and we will both be involved. Ms. Drescher and her team have done an incredible job. There are people that care and because people like Elias and like you, our organizations are covering these things, we have to speak up. It's that dip in journalists that you guys talk about on your member drive. Yeah. We have to talk about the importance of the arts and arts education and really looking at this as, uh, as not just fluff, but that this is how we tell the stories about democracy and how communities take care of each other. We have no idea 
where, where this will lead. We hope it's going in the right direction, but that will bear out as we see how these agreements actually affect the bottom lines of real households and artists and, and, and people making art. Jackie, thank you so much for your call. We wish you, your husband, your family all the best, particularly as you navigate the gap in health care and what a major issue that is for your family. I'd love to hear from others, uh, actors like Jackie, like her husband, to share your experience, what it's been like for you not being able to work for such an extended period, what hopes you have, even without our knowledge of the details of the tentative agreement, what hopes you have um, in the way this will make a difference in your career. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Dominic, uh, Jackie's story, uh, obviously very specific to her and her family, but this issue of, of health care coverage and and of diminished income because of much shorter series, this affects thousands of people. Oh, very, very much so. I mean, the industry, as Jackie said, this, this has been transformative over the past 10 years. I mean, it feels almost antique to say, oh, do you remember when streaming started? But it really only started 10 years ago. We know well, a lot of what was in the previous contracts, no disrespect to anybody who worked on them, a lot of those, they were talking about a different era. And this is part of what I think SAG-AFRA were very um, strong uh, about. This is what the WGA were very strong about, is recognizing things have changed. We have gone from a 20th century paradigm to a 21st century paradigm. And the way of the industry, which for many people, especially here in Southern California, was a, was a pathway to a middle-class life, that has changed dramatically. And, and the reality of the economic circumstances, as Jackie described and many others, were not catching up with that. This deal, from what I'm understanding, is a giant step towards that. It's a billion-dollar deal, as I believe you said in the introduction, which is much, much more than, than people thought was going to be paid out over this. This is a three-year contract, and, of course, this is now a building block, with the WGA contract also being one, towards the future. You're going to see IATSE having their contract next year. You're going to see the Teamsters having their contract next year. And, of course, within just over 24 months, we're going to be back and doing this again with, with these unions. This is part of the real disruption. Disruption is a word that executives love to throw around when they basically tweak something or and maybe add a little more color to it. This is real disruption. This is taking economic realities and putting them into, into codification because in this community where we have seen the pandemic hit us so hard, where we've seen these six months of strikes hit people so hard. Again, I've named some of the billions of dollars that it, it, it has hit this, this economy. This is something that is going to be needed to really not just revitalize the entertainment industry, but Southern California as a community. Dominic, uh, I know it's difficult to forecast where we're going with the industry, but we talked a bit about this after the writer's strike was settled and whether we're going to be seeing many fewer series greenlit, whether we're going to be seeing a change in the number of episodes and how that's all going to affect the in industry writ large. I mean, that's that's got to be the concern when you look at some of the economic issues that are affecting entertainment. Oh, I think definitely so, Larry. I mean, I think we can say without a doubt we are going to see less. You know, some people will use the terms, I believe, that Sarandos from Netflix referred to or, or, or one Netflix executive referred to 
uh, quality over quantity. I mean, Disney have said, and Bob Iger in the earnings call yesterday talked about, you know, that they had kind of lost their way with too much product. And they really wanted to get kind of focused on that. That is, you know, those are nice words, but they have economic impact. It means yeah. less shows. We've already seen that for writers coming back from their strike when they when they reached a deal on September 24th and ratified it on October 9th. So these are realities of, of what is a, 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 a compacting industry for the time right now. Um, the change in linear television, what used to be the, the, the fable of 22 episode seasons, I think you're going to see those fading away over time. How that transformation happens and what the economic safeguards are, those are going to be part of the next round of how this gets played out. But I think what we've seen, everyone from our understanding in that room, from the CEOs to Fran Drescher to Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who was a chief negotiator for the union, and with the WGA before them, they recognize that these are realities. Because the fact of the matter is, this has kind of already happened. So we're not talking about the future. We're talking Mm. about now. Dominic, always a pleasure. Thank you for your continuing coverage throughout the course of these strikes. We always appreciate you being with us on AirTalk. We'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you, Larry. And thank you so much for you being such a a valuable member of the community. I know so many people in the entertainment industry listen to the show and and get so much information. Sometimes I like to say when I'm on, but always when other people (laughs) are on. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Dominic Patton, Senior Editor for Deadline. It's Air Talk on L.A. Estate 89.3. And such good news that a tentative deal has been reached and people will soon be going back to work. We certainly hope that's sooner rather than later. It's Air Talk on L.A. Estate 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about last night's a smaller field Republican candidates debate in Miami. Just five of the GOP candidates We'll talk with a couple of experts about uh, the arguments that were made and the positions that were taken when we come back in a minute. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. So glad to have you with us on Air Talk. Coming up later this hour, the author of the new book, A.K.A. Lucy, The Dynamic and Determined Life of Lucille Ball. It's a wonderful uh, book and how it's organized around different chapters uh, related to Ball's life and her work in films where she was a prolific actor, 80 movies. (laughs) 
that she made um, most of those before becoming the biggest of television stars. But we begin with a televised debate last night in Miami, a field of five candidates in this third debate, the smallest yet, and of course conspicuous by his absence, the man who dominates the polls, that is former President Donald Trump. But uh, the fireworks most revolved around Nikki Haley and the political newcomer Vivek Ramaswamy. They clashed a number of times uh, over international issues like China and Russia, the domestic economy. Ramaswamy at one point even said voting for Haley would be like voting for Dick Cheney in three-inch heels. That did not go over well with the audience in the auditorium. Here are the two candidates sparring over the social media app TikTok. How do you get TikTok banned if you use it? Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which was about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Your adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters propping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. We got to go further. I don't recall one candidate calling another scum in one of these debates. But Ramaswamy playing almost the role of the wrestling heel, um, almost in some ways seeming to bait the audience in the debate last night. Joining us is Aaron Call, director of debate at the University of Michigan. He was in the audience last night which uh, the debate ironically heavily sponsored by TikTok. I couldn't help laughing out loud when I saw these TikTok ads as they're talking about how evil TikTok is. And Rob Stutzman, Republican political consultant and president of Stutzman Public Affairs. Aaron, it's good to have you with us again. We so much appreciate it. This a far more substantive debate, it seemed to me, than the last one you and I talked about. Definitely. I think having NBC News involved and experienced moderators um, like Lester Holt, uh, Kristen Welker, and Hugh Hewitt um, really helped, and, and also less candidates. I mean, just having five candidates, two hours, everyone's going to get in plenty of time and not have to worry about getting an edgewise in. And you know, it was certainly a big foreign policy focus because it's, it's been six weeks since the last debate, and obviously things have really escalated in the Middle East. But also had opportunities to talk about things like abortion and um, the economy, um, entitlement reform. And so, and yes, definitely a brush of fair, uh, fresh air for the debate um, in comparison to Simi Valley when we last spoke. And, and your thoughts about uh, Nikki Haley uh, and uh, uh, Ramaswamy, you know, going back and forth. Obviously, Ramaswamy is trying to get some sort of traction here, but um, given that, you know, suburban women uh, seemingly decide elections today, I didn't understand um, the logic behind his approach. What were your thoughts? Uh, yes, he, he seems to maybe sometimes have good intentions, but just uh, takes it a step too far and kind of flies too close to the sun. He, he started out well in the first debate in Milwaukee, and then as we got to climate and, you know, he called it a hoax kind of. I think lost the audience and some of the the younger Republicans who had co-sponsored that debate. Um, this time, you know, attacking the head of the Republican National Committee out of the gate, and then getting into a very contentious exchange with Haley. Um, it is kind of it's a questionable strategy. He does uh, do a good job of attracting airtime and and the center of attention. I think he had the second or third most speaking time last night, but. 
being in the middle of so many controversial exchanges really has increased his negatives. Um, and he's you know, kind of declined uh, in, in the race since the opening debate. But I think that uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis probably um, was happy to see these exchanges that allowed him to to be a little bit above the fray and wasn't attacked with the same disdain and, and vigor. And that was just kind of a sideshow um, as opposed to the substance, I think, that undecided voters at least wanted to uh, hear about. I thought DeSantis seemed um, to be enjoying a home court advantage in the sense he seemed a bit more relaxed. I, I thought he made a better presentation last night than he had in previous debates. Rob Stutzman, what, what did you think of, of how DeSantis came across last night? I agree. <clears throat> Sorry, Larry. I agreed relaxed is probably, compared to his other performances, the right way to to describe him. If if you listen to where he began his campaign to where he is now, he has really abandoned uh, talking about wokeness. Uh, he's largely abandoned trying to out MAGA uh, Trump. I think what his campaign has realized that if they are to live beyond Iowa, they have to compete with Haley for the, in Iowa right now, over 50% of Republicans that aren't saying they're going to vote for Trump. So it's more of a traditional Republican lane where his survival lies in the moment. And I think that was reflected last night by his tone and messaging. To me, Haley has been the most consistently strong of the candidates on the debate stage for these three. Rob, your thoughts about, you know, did she and DeSantis separate themselves from the other three last night? Well, I think they already have separated themselves. I think what they accomplished last night is not falling back to them. Uh, depending how you want to score it, I think they were one-two uh, last night in in performance. If you give Haley or give Haley first place, you know that's really three for three, and it's yeah. really these debates is what has have propelled her. I think last night you saw last gaps and swan songs from Tim Scott and probably eventually Chris Christie. Uh, and Ramaswamy is there for different reasons than running for president. I mean, Aaron touched on it. He's getting airtime. It really feels like he's auditioning for something other than uh, being the presidential nominee. Well, and it seems like he's emulating the bombastic approach of Donald Trump. But Trump, with his audiences, lands those lines. And Ramaswamy, at least last night, seemed to really miss the mark, if that is what Ramaswamy is attempting to do. It shows you the unique power of Donald Trump, which defies uh, logic, that he can be so insulting to people and get away with it. But a mere mortal like Ramaswamy is insulting the people, and it's really offensive to folks, as it yeah. as you would think it, it would be. And as Aaron has pointed out, his negatives have climbed through the roof. The more people are seeing of him now, the less they like. I'd love to hear from Republican listeners to air talk. And, and when I say Republican, that means registered as GOP or that you're independent, but you lean Republican. You would like to be able to vote for a Republican candidate for president. I'd be interested to hear what you thought if you watched or listened to the debate last night. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at 18. 
comments at LAist.com. Please include your location and your first name. Michael in Santa Monica said, I don't understand why they don't have real debates where they let people finish answers, turn off microphones, etc. These can be entertaining, but they're not useful. No high schooler in a debate club would get away with anything these candidates have done on stage. Michael, you are so true, and I sometimes think that um, the media companies that are doing the debates almost want there to be a certain degree of chaos and 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 a lack of, of kind of wonky political um, uh, you know policy issues being out there. Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that I mean there's just the economics of these debates. I mean the the different networks that bid for them need to sell advertisements. But I will say last night the moderators did a pretty good job of trying to decrease that circus atmosphere from like what we saw in Simi Valley, where they were doing questions about Survivor and voting the candidates off the island. Uh, Lester Holt um, several times kind of admonished the audience for um, kind of interfering with the debate and substance and not being able to hear what the candidates were saying. I, I thought it was very interesting. I don't know that it got much attention at the very beginning of the debate. Um, kind of uh, he cautioned the candidates about that, about um, speaking over each other, exceeding their times, and that they would have the ability to um, you know, give them less questions or take away time from them if they chose to do so. I thought that was a good deterrent effect. But the problem with uh, cutting off microphone and too much autonomy for the candidates is you may not get, you may get less participation in the debates. I mean, part of the reason that we only had two presidential ones last time was that Trump didn't want to participate in a virtual debate on Zoom because he thought you know, the, micro, the moderator would have too much autonomy potentially cut off his microphone and, you know, Ramaswamy at one point threatened not to participate in this debate. So I think at some point it's just a negotiation and you have to um, kind of do what the candidates want to get all the, the participants that you need. So um, there's a, a, definitely a, a very uh, delicate give and take there. I thought Lester Holt uh, was impressive that the audience listened to him. And I believe it was Lester who at one point said to Ramaswamy, you're essentially the only one who's who's stepping on the other candidates and being rude. I'm paraphrasing. And um, it was very effective. So it was nice to see Lester Holt really. Um, and he didn't do it by raising his voice. He just used his his genial gravitas to do it. It was it was very effective. Rob, I want to talk about abortion because you see here, particularly after the shellacking Republicans took on Tuesday, um, that uh, abortion has become a fraught issue for the party. What did you think of the way the candidates handled it? I thought it was fascinating, substantive the discussion, and I, and I think the previous debates have had similar good discussions about about abortion. It was interesting. They they all chalk up the losses, obviously, in Ohio with the ballot measure, but then also the failure of Republicans to capture the state house of Virginia as a messaging problem. You know, Ramaswamy got some, it was all about messaging and railed on the national party. But there's really a policy problem for the Republicans they're trying to figure out. And this goes back to Haley, and she staked out this ground in the first debate, which is more of that uh, general election, moderate, middle of the road, uh, position on a, on a ban, but after I, I believe she's at 15 weeks, might be 17 weeks. But and then when she's pressed on it by hardliners like she was by Mike Pence uh, in the first debate, she pushed back rather credibly, saying, "Tell the truth. You can't get 60 votes in the Senate for any type of ban more than than that. Maybe not even that." 
And I think she's finding a very effective general election message. If you look at the national polls, she is by far the most favored candidate in general election matchups. She basically is what America wants in a general election. Uh, now, they, they may not get it, but she is she's hitting the mark if it comes to November. The question is, you know, what does that do to her uh, in, in Iowa and South Carolina and these critical early states? Uh, Ken in Larchmont Village said, I'm a Republican. Like with the last election, it's all about the tone and the message. And uh, the Republican message now is very separatist. And I don't agree with that. I find the party highly divisive. That's Ken in Larchmont as a Republican weighing in. Rob, um, there obviously are a significant number of voters who um, lean into traditional Republicanism and are finding it difficult how the party has become uh, so much more partisan. We've seen this, of course, both parties have have uh, moved toward their polarities. But um, Republicans so often talking about, you know, working with Democrats, a terrible thing and and disloyal. Um, is is there is there any need as you see it to start winning elections by toning down that kind of rhetoric? Well, it's yes, it's it's been a losing formula. I mean, Donald Trump wins without the popular vote in 2016, and he's never grown his his voter coalition. So he immediately uh, began to began to shrink what the Republican coalition was. So there's been no growing of that coalition. You now have, I think, well, let's call them Reagan style Republicans who are growing weary and have become alarmed, but it's not just tone, but they don't no longer recognize uh, many Republicans in Congress who do not support you know, international intervention, asserting America's strength in the world, which is manifesting in whether or not we support Ukraine on a going forward basis, uh, protectionist trade policies, which we certainly had under Trump. So it you are starting to either, you're either gonna have a correction where those uh, can those voters find a candidate they can stay with the Republican Party with, or you'll start to see uh, fracturing realignment, probably is a realignment going on in American politics, which really gets to not the topic of the day, but the fascinating prospect of independence being on the ballot next November and what the appeal may be for a lot of Americans uh, to have options beyond their the traditional parties. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for being with us. That's Rob Stutzman, Republican political consultant. His firm is Stutzman Public Affairs. And Aaron Call, director of debate at the University of Michigan. He was in the audience for last night's debate, as he was for the last one in Simi Valley at the Reagan Library, where debate number two was held. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up, we remember Lucille Ball with the author of the new book, A.K.A. Lucy subtitled The Dynamic and Determined Life of Lucille Ball. We'll talk with her and hear one of the classic, classic scenes from I Love Lucy when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org.
Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. me. We're as happy as two can be. We have our quarrels, but then, oh, how we love making up again. That's Desi Arnaz, of course, uh, singing about his then-wife Lucille Ball. And we're going to talk with the author of A.K.A. Lucy, The Dynamic and Determined Life of Lucille Ball. But let's first listen to one of the classic scenes from the classic comedy I Love Lucy. This the episode. Lucy does a TV commercial. She gets her big break, becoming a spokeswoman for a new diet supplement. But what's in that drink that she uh, tries to describe? Hello, friends. I'm your vitamin vegemin girl. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? Are you unpopular? The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. A uh, little bottle. <laughs> uh, vitamin vegemin. Vitamin vegemin contains vitamins, meats, vegetables, and minerals. Uh, Yes, with Vitamina Vegemin, you can spoon your way to help. All you have to do is take a big tablespoonful after every meal. It's so tasty, too. Tastes like candy. Honest. <laughs> so why don't you join the thousands of happy, happy people and get a great big bottle of Vitamina Vegemin? Remember that name. Mina Vatimidimat. Lucille Ball, of course, classic I Love Lucy episode. Everybody has their favorites. Some of them are, the, it's the physical comedy that's so incredible. Also the crack writing staff of that classic situation comedy. But in her new book, Sarah Royal takes chapter by chapter important episodes in Lucy's life and describes what was so unique about her extraordinary career as an actor, as a businesswoman, and a cultural icon. Sarah Thank you so much for joining us to talk about AKA Lucy. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. One of the things that that I think is is just so captures her. You've you've got a photo um, from 1940s Dance Girl Dance, and um, there was a brawl with Maureen O'Hara in the film. But the photo, which is alongside the forward by Amy Poehler, so captures that sexy, funny thing that Lucille Ball had with the scrunched-up face but glammed up <laughs> at the same time. I mean, it beautifully encapsulated the appeal that she had on multiple levels. Absolutely. Uh, Ginger Rogers' mother, uh, Leela Rogers, once described her as a clown with glamour. And that's uh, kind of exactly who Lucy was. 
Well, and and so let's talk about her early life because people overlook, and you bring this to the fore, she made more than 80 movies in her career. There were some of them, of course, like Mame or the movies with Bob Hope that were after she was a TV star. But a huge chunk of those were before I Love Lucy was ever created. Um, what were the kinds of roles that she was getting at that time? Yeah, she has, I mean, an incredible film career. Like you said, over 80 movies. She once did eight movies in a single year, which is wild. But um, she, you know, she found, she didn't quite find her way to superstardom in the movies. She was getting roles that um, really didn't reflect the domestic, you know, housewife uh, goofiness persona that she played on I Love Lucy, but more of the uh, the people she played, you know, the, the role she played in Dance Girl Dance, as you mentioned, um, which was sort of a, a cigarette girl, you know, a, a sort of a, a snarky character on the side with an edge. Um, so she she really she didn't feel quite at home in those roles, and it didn't give her quite the chance to to shine, to be a relatable person, but also be a goofball um, that she, of course, later found in both radio and television. You have another great photo with her alongside her co-star, Richard Denning, uh, My Favorite Husband, a CBS series that I, I think was done at Columbia Square here in Hollywood. And um, what's great is you see in her body language how she's bringing everything to this radio role that people can't see. And Denning is just very upright and, you know, He's he knows he's on radio. She's like doing it for a, an audience in person. I love that photo. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fun fact about the radio shows, especially back then, is that they were in front of live audiences. And in fact, that that was part of what was so different about radio is much closer to a stage performance than, say, all of her movie roles, right? She's performing for a camera and, uh, you know, the boom operator on the side or somebody sweeping up the studio in the background. But the radio show live audience was what also really sparked the idea to have a live studio audience for I Love Lucy in television. That was actually... A, an invention by Desi Arnaz, knowing that his wife at the time could perform best live. So the reason that we have live studio audiences today for sitcoms is mostly thanks to Desi Arnaz. We should mention you have an extraordinary array of photos in this book and that you had the cooperation of the family. This was really a collaborative project. The photos are extraordinary. From, from where did they come? Uh, all over, really. So yes, it's uh, it's authorized by the estate of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and they've been wonderful partners in putting this book out, but also working with the National Comedy Center in Jamestown, New York, in Lucille Ball's hometown, which also runs Lucille Ball Desi Arnaz um, Museum. And uh, yeah, it really came from a, a vast array of archives, you know, again, a lot from her movie career and the early life and lots of old scans, you know, of sort of black and white and sepia photos. So it really was a, a great team effort and uh, really built out the visuals of this book. I mean, the book looks like a coffee table book and you open yeah. it up and you say, oh, wow, there's a lot of words in here. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's a nice balance. Uh Let's talk about uh, the drive that she brought to her work. Um, she had very rough early years in Hollywood, difficult uh, at times family life. And you have quotes from people who observed an extraordinary drive to succeed in the entertainment industry. And w what were some of those things people were saying about her at the time? 
I mean, she, you know, she was so motivated by family, um, both her, you know, the family that she grew up with, with her mother and her brother and extended family, grandfather, etc., all the way to when she eventually married Desi Arnaz and had two children, but also just recognized that, you know, life was a real struggle and that she had to persevere and she really, really wanted to perform. She saw that this was a way to engage with audiences and make them feel things. She was really inspired by those types of feelings. So people, I mean, you know, the people consistently throughout her entire career just understood that she was a person who was the hardest worker of anybody that would be in a studio or elsewhere, and she would make something work. What's interesting is she's actually not, and by her own admission too, she's actually not a naturally funny person. A lot of the work that you see her do and the comedy she performs on screen is a result of hard work and a work ethic that just says, we gotta get it right because I know the right way to either hold this prop or make this face or you know use uh, a line of dialogue in the right way to get the best reaction from an audience. So consistently you see a lot of people in her life just point to that, point to that she had the best work ethic. When other actors said, all right, time to, time to wrap it up. We've already done seven takes. She'll say, no, let's do eight. They <laughs> weren't quite right. Well, and, and that's not unusual in my experience um, talking with comedic performers over the years, that many of them are actually quite serious. They're not all like Jonathan Winters, who did a 20-minute routine for me at a drugstore in Toluca Lake, <laughs> just just for, for my then-girlfriend and me, which stood there just uh, entranced by Jonathan Winters performing for us. He didn't know who we were or anything. That's, that's rare. I think her, that kind of seriousness, but the ability to be funny on command for performance makes a difference. Let me read a quote uh, from your book in which Ball says, it is so important to have what I like to call the enchanted sense of play. We did some pretty crazy things on I Love Lucy, but we believed every minute of them. I leave you with that quote. We'll come back and continue our conversation with pop culture historian Sarah Royal. Her new book, book done um, uh, along with the estate of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, titled A.K.A. Lucy, The Dynamic and Determined Life of Lucille Ball. We'll be back in a minute. Coming up next hour on Air Talk, we continue our week-long series on military veterans. And today we open up the phones to hear from those who've served in the military what the transition to civilian life was like. We're going to talk about the divide between the civilian population and those who've served in the military because that's a vaster gulf uh, than we've had before in this country. We'll take calls and we'll talk about what are some of the ways of potentially closing that gap. Right now, our focus is on the amazing Lucille Ball, the book, a.k.a. Lucy, written by Sarah Royal with forward by Amy Poehler, who did that terrific documentary on Desi and Lucy. I want to talk about the business side of Lucille ball because um, I think in many ways today she gets more her due on that than she did back when she was doing the work of running Desilu. What led her to buy out her ex-husband's share in the company? 
I mean, just uh, the simple fact that she wasn't done working yet. Um, you know, there, there was a, an opportunity to buy out Desi's shares and, or the other option, of course, was to sell entirely. And she was not ready to sort of give up everything that she'd created. She was really driven by her career. And I think that that's also something that was rare, um, you know, in terms of recognition for a woman back then, particularly a very, you know, beautiful woman on television that was a celebrity in her own right. Do you think she thought she needed to keep Desi Lu for future shows that she herself would do or that she really wanted to be a player in creating shows like The Untouchables and Star Trek? Uh, I mean, I think a balance. I think she was really inspired specifically like in her later career by up and coming, you know, actresses and other actors and creating shows and comedy. But she actually never wanted to be, you know, the boss, quote unquote. <laughs> that was all the work that Desi did behind the scenes. She was ha perfectly happy to be a performer and to sort of hobnob and give advice like off screen um, to sort of those up and coming kiddos. But again, the opportunity presented itself and she said, yeah, I need to keep Desi Lou running because you know, there could be more scenes in it for me, but there's also a lot of talented people here. They, you know, they, she really did think of it as a family that they had built from the ground up. So funny how Lou buys out RKO and she had done a fair number of RKO pictures herself. Yeah, that's actually where she and Desi first met on the set of RKO. So it was kind of a, a beautiful little kismet yeah. that uh, they eventually bought it. How difficult was it for her when Life with Lucy is her first series to fail? I mean, really terrible. I think it was it, one of those things where it was she was upset that she was being criticized for sort of coming back to work. Um, she, again, saw saw this as a job. She said, you know, we're I'm excited about it. We're going to put the art out. I think she could understand a lot of, you know, negative criticism, although she was very sensitive and vulnerable, as many of us are, you know, with somebody criticizing your art. But um, she was really upset that people were commenting on her age and essentially saying, you're a millionaire. Like, why are you, why are you doing this? And she was like, you don't understand. Like, I have to work or I'm nothing. <laughs> you know, that's, that was really, she had a lot of sort of who she was tied up in what she did. So it took a while for her to really sort of come to terms with that. And I think it was before that she, that she did that TV movie uh, in which she played a person living on the street, Stone Pillow. That was actually yeah. before Life with Lucy, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. And that was part of what inspired, um, you know, the the studio to uh, the network to pick her up um, for Life with Lucy, as well as shows such as like the Cosby show, the Golden Girls that had sort of been a second vehicle, you know, to, to re for returning stars that had had previous successes um, in their older age. But Life with Lucy, for a variety of reasons, just, you know, didn't work out. And I think, uh, you know, it took her it took her a long time to sort of like come to terms with that. As I said, she has a lot of uh, great, um, you know, appearances, a few appearances on Joan Rivers show back then uh, talking about uh, the sort of criticism that she received and how it took a while for her to, you know, remember that she still has a lot of fans despite that cancellation. Well, I think what you show in this book, um, and it's not necessarily explicit, but it's embedded in it, is this incredible drive that she had to be successful as an entertainer and to please audiences went along with, as it typically does, a high degree of sensitivity. And so mm -hmm. any sort of a setback was, um, and, and perhaps maybe even putting her, her first marriage in that category, was extremely difficult. Now, divorce is hard for anyone, but, but mm -hmm. particularly, you know, seeing things as failures were clearly hit her very, very hard. 
Yeah, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, she had a somewhat difficult childhood in which, you know, things would be fine for a while and then the bottom would drop out. You know, some some big sort of tragedy would befall her or her family. So even with the success of I Love Lucy, with her 19-year-old marriage, with, you know, the success of Desilu and all of the, um, you know, the, the shows and programs that came after that, she always was waiting. Even when she was at the top of the, you know, of the world as like the greatest superstar, she was always sort of waiting for that, the shoe to drop to say, all right, this is this can't be real, right? So almost pinch yourself. So I think when the failures did come, she did expect them, but they even just hurt that much more because it sort of almost proved to her that she wasn't worth it. When when of course she was. It was just that she, you know, she had a, a difficult time processing it all than than others. Uh, it's just it'd be fun to imagine how she, if she was still alive at more than a hundred years of age, uh, looked at the enduring popularity of of her work across varying platforms and the impact that she's had on this industry. It's, 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 it's extraordinary. My sense is that she'd kind of be along, obviously happy, but kind of shocked by it at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's a quote that I have in my book of um, uh, a friend of hers basically saying, isn't it amazing that, you know, anyone you you can just look at all these house lights out there over the hills and anyone you could just say Lucy and they know exactly who you're talking about. And she says, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. To think about. <laughs> she was Thanks. really uncomfortable with that. So yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Sarah Royal is the author of AKA Lucy, the dynamic and determined life of Lucille Ball. It's air time. Talk on LA is 89.3. I'll tell you in a moment what's coming next hour. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us on this Thursday. We continue our week-long series devoted to military veterans and their experiences. We've had so many strong segments, uh, strong listener calls, and terrific guests. Our Air Talk production team, as always, just really works so hard on on finding the right people to talk about these important issues. Today, we turn our attention to camaraderie, purpose, and the civilian-military divide. Now, if you are a military veteran or a close family member of someone who is, I'm particularly interested in hearing from you how you found that sense of camaraderie, how you found that sense of purpose, if you have, after serving in the military. And I'd also be interested in hearing your thoughts about how to bridge the divide between civilians and the military. Uh, Pew reports that as of last year, just 6% of Americans 
are veterans of military service. That's an incredibly low percentage. Uh, that's adults, of course, and that has created a huge cultural gap in this country. And we've invited Marketplace host Kai Rizdahl to join us to talk about that, that divide. He's a U.S. Navy veteran, 1985 to 1993. Kai, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Larry, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Share with us, first of all, just based on your personal experience of, of service, did you have any challenges finding the same kind of sense of, of purpose or the kind of social connections that you had when you were in service? Yeah, I did. And before we get going, it's important to point out that I had it easy coming out of the service, right? I was an officer. I had an education. More importantly, my deployments were peacetime deployments. Um, I was an aviator on an aircraft carrier, so when, you know, we did general quarters drills, my assignment almost literally was to go to my stateroom and, and sleep and stay out of the way of the, of the aircraft carrier crew that was fighting the ship. Um, but, you know, by the time I got out, I had, I had done what I wanted to do in the Navy, and it was time for me to figure out what I wanted to be, in essence, you know, when I grew up. And it, the transition was really hard. And, again, I had it easy. There was no combat in my, in my service. There was no real difficulties. But that transition, figuring out how to go from this regimented, uh, disciplined, things are done for you in a way, uh, uh, way of living— um, can be tricky if you're trying to find your footing in the civilian world. Forget about if you're, you know, 20 and 22 years old, just coming out of sort of high school and a three-year enlistment, and, and you're you're sort of challenged. Did you sustain any of those friendships from when you were in the military for a number of years later? A, a couple for a number of years later. They faded as things do, and, and it wasn't really, and this is a, you know, it's, it's a much longer story that, that we can get into if you want to, but it wasn't until I found my way to public radio, honestly, and the newsroom at KQED, um, where I found that sense of camaraderie and, more importantly, sense of purpose and mission um, that had driven me and sustained me in my military service. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that because yeah. because when you work for a mission-driven organization right. and you're part of a team because you know no one in radio does it on their own, it, it's a team-oriented process. And, yeah, it, it creates—I can't compare it to the military because I haven't served, but— but uh, I could see where what you're saying, it, it creates that kind of camaraderie. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And, and it's a great feeling of home, you know. It took me a while to get there after my military service, but, but it definitely did, yeah. I, and let's talk about the civilian-military divide. We, yeah. We've never had such a cultural divide between those who've served and haven't served in our nation's history. Do you have thoughts on how to bridge that? Yeah, it's so. This is something I've been thinking about. As, as I said in my note to to you and Matt, your senior producer, when I when I um, brought up this subject, as something for you guys to cover because I heard the promos on on Monday and Tuesday, and I'm I'm so pleased you guys are doing this important work. But but look, we don't have in this country a set of shared experiences. We don't have a common definition of not what it means to be an American, but what it means to have the benefits of being an American, right? When you have 6% of the adults in this country ever having served, so first of all, that's vanishingly rare, right, in a country of 340 million people. It's, it's not very many people at all. Not very many people know veterans or have veterans who are family members or close friends, and so they don't have an understanding of the, the sense of mission, the sense of drive, and then the challenge of coming out. 
um, it's again a much longer story. But but I believe that if we had a way to have common experiences, if we had some sense of common service, common obligation, then maybe we would just understand each other just a tad better. Because right now you look around, and certainly there's a lot going on in the political sphere. The United States is not very united right now. And that, I think, is is a real challenge for us. And and um, as as we look at the all volunteer military and and how that sort of helped create this chasm between the, those serving and those not serving, uh, obviously there's a huge positive side to that as well. But if we had uh, a service component for young people that was you know more, we have Teach for America things like that, mm-hmm. but it was more embraced. Um, how far do you think that could go? I think it could go quite a way. Look, so so here's the deal. There are ways to serve this country, and, and it's not um, for lack of opportunity. It's also not, by the way, for lack of desire, right? I mean, AmeriCorps and Teach for America are oversubscribed. We just lack the money and the funding from Congress, which is a, you know, a, a separate challenge getting Congress to do anything. Um, we, we have the opportunities. It's instilling in people the understanding that what happens in this country, what we have as a result of the democracy, the economy we have, and I could just put on my marketplace hat for a minute, yeah. what we have in this economy as a result of the representative democracy that we have, the rule of law, redress if things go wrong, equal, certainly not sufficiently equal, but mostly equal opportunity and ways to get ahead if we can in education, those things all come at a price. And I think it's pretty clear that we've lost sense, uh, lost the sense of what that price might be. And it's not, by the way, active duty military service. The Pentagon does not want conscription. The Pentagon does not want a draft, right? They tried that in Vietnam. It didn't work out so well. They don't want people who don't want to be there, right? They want motivated, engaged people who believe in the spirit and the mission of the military service. And that's great. And that's fabulous for a certain set of people. But not there. that is not what everybody desires to do. But the, the ability to serve, the call to serve, the government infrastructure to serve, in a civilian capacity, whether compulsory or not, um, could go some way, I believe, to fixing the the challenges that the divide in this country that exists. That common experience, particularly in youth, when so mm-hmm. much is is set, you know, for later life, Kai has such an influence on us, whether it's college, whether it's military service or combination of those. Kai, thank you for rearranging your schedule to join yeah. us and to kick off this conversation. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it, and thanks for doing the work. Oh, thanks so much. Kai Rizdahl, you'll hear him later today, host of Marketplace on public radio stations coast to coast. Kai, a Navy veteran from 1985 to 1993. So this is where you come in. I want to hear from you what your suggestions are for closing this divide between those who've served in the military, which extends to military families, and those who haven't. Because one of the things that we see is there are, in this country, military families where typically more than one person is or has served, and then families where virtually no one has served in the military since the Vietnam era. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. If you're someone who did serve in the military, I'd also like to hear from you. What gave you a sense of purpose when you got out? What helped you find your way? professionally, and your identity of who you are as a person in the world, contributing in some way. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. 
please include your location and first name. Also, that sense of camaraderie, because you're in this uh, intense environment in military service, and you're having to rely on your teammates, your fellow service members, on a, a constant basis, which builds these kinds of friendships, which sometimes are lifelong, not always, but sometimes for people who've served. So what gives that sense of being a team member, that sense of, of camaraderie and mutual commitment, what was that for you if you served in the military or you have a close family member who did and you can share that person's experience? 866 866- 893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, joining us actually is the fiance of uh, Lindsay, our producer here, or, or I'm sorry, uh, the, uh, they're married, Trent and Lindsay uh, from Culver City. Uh, Trent, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. Trent, what was it like for you after you served? Yes. Um, getting out of the military can be really tricky um, because, you know, I had those phone calls that would come at 2 a.m. in the morning and you'd have to rush over the base. And, you know, you had people's lives that literally depended on you. And, uh, you know, you don't want those phone calls at 2 a.m. But then when you remove yourself from the military, you start to figure out like, wow, like it's hard to feel that important. Um, because when you get out, you're not getting that 2 a.m. phone call that you dreaded. Um, and you know, you're not saving people's lives every day, um, or every week, every month. And so getting out, actually, I struggled quite a bit trying to find purpose and like, I guess, drive, um, because sometimes things just don't seem so important when you get out of the military versus when you're in. Um, so I actually really struggled there for a while. Um, but ultimately I think I, you know, I combated that by, you know, finding a good friend group staying busy with college and then ultimately like finding a career path that like meant a lot for me. Um, But that's because I still needed to find work and like find a job. Whereas like people that have been in for, you know, 20, 30 years, they're getting out and going straight to retirement and they're not being able to go to like, they're not going back to work. So they aren't able to find those friends sometimes. So it's like even harder on those people that have been in for even longer periods of time. Trent, when, when you're talking about how things don't seem that important once you get out compared to what you were doing when you were in service, um, how did that manifest itself? Did you just find it hard to kind of get going, to pursue jobs? Um, what, yeah. Is that what was going I mean, on? Ultimately, Larry, like in the workforce, um, you know, when we're talking in the military, we're talking about maintaining a flight schedule or, you know, doing ceremonies for the president at these very like high caliber levels. And then, you know, I'm in the beverage industry and it's like, oh, you know, uh, such and such account didn't get their one case of beer because they forgot to order it. And like all of a sudden it's a big ordeal to them and other people. But to me, I'm sitting there and I'm like, guys, like, that's what we care about today. Yeah. And in reality, like, it is really important for our company to make sure we're taking um, care of that for the account. And like, so it's one of those things where, you know, in the military, it's pretty easy to see why things are important. But when you get out, things just aren't as important as when you were in. And you kind of have to like recalibrate almost. 
Yeah. And and do you have any advice for others who might be going through that period of their lives where they're having difficulty recalibrating to things that seem more mundane but are essential within the scope of business being done? Yeah. I mean, I think I've seen I've seen it a lot because as, you know, uh, fellow military people that I've ran into at work and stuff, it's a common conversation that we're having. And ultimately, um, if you are struggling to find importance in like the work that you're doing, it's really important to talk to your boss about that and be direct with them and say like, Hey, like, you know, if I'm prioritizing certain things, like, is this important? Is this something I should care about? And you'd be surprised how often like your boss is actually going to come back and be like, you know what? Like that actually isn't a priority or they might be like, yeah, as a company, that's really, really important for us. Trent, thank you so much. Really appreciate you calling in and sharing your experience of military service and the challenge getting out. And just before I let you go, um, how did you build that friend group or that sense of camaraderie? What did you pursue pursue to create that? Um, I fortunately am a very outgoing person, so I've been able to, you know, meet with people at, you know, bars, restaurants that I just love to hang in and uh, ultimately, you know, using other people's friends groups um, as like Lindsay, for example, and becoming friends with her friends and uh, just leveraging, even if you have a small group, you know, hang out with them and their friend groups too. Trent, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Trent in Culver City, who's the partner of Lindsay Ride, our AirTalk producer, joining us to talk about his transition from military service to being out. We're at 866-893-5722. Before we break, let's talk with Victoria in Long Beach. I understand you're a Navy veteran, Victoria. Please uh, share with us how you found your sense of purpose and social connection post-service. Wow. Hello, and thank you for turning on this show today. Um, I was uh, I was in the Navy, of course, and I got out in 93. I was, you know, in the Navy. Hey, Victoria, and I'm sorry. Out. The quality of the call is we're having difficulty understanding you. We're going to see if we can figure out a little better connection. I'm so sorry. We'll, we'll try and get Victoria and Long Beach back on with a little cleaner connection in just a moment. It's Air Talk on LA, at 89.3, the fourth of our five days devoted to veterans. And we're talking about the sense of camaraderie and purpose once one gets out of military service. Also, what are the ways that we can close the divide between between those who've served and those who haven't, with just 6% of Americans who have a background in military service, 94% of us don't have that experience. How do we make those connections across that divide? 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name back in a minute. Coming up tomorrow on Film Week at 10 o'clock, we'll hear what our critics Andy Klein and Manuel Betancourt have to say about the Marvels. Brie Larson is back in the film, directed and co-written by Nia DaCosta. We'll also hear about the film Jezebel, which is a Venezuelan-Mexican co-production, a crime thriller. 
Also, the documentary Albert Brooks' Defending My Life, a play on one of his uh, film comedies. Uh, Rob Reiner, uh, who been a longtime friend of Albert Brooks, directs the documentary, which features interviews with Sharon Stone, Larry David, James L. Brooks, Conan O'Brien, Sarah Silverman, and Jonah Hill. Uh, also, uh, we'll hear about the documentary Who I Am Not, uh, which focuses on two intersex people who live in South Africa, one a beauty queen, the other an activist. Who I Am Not. That's another documentary that you'll hear about those and many more films tomorrow on Film Week at 10 here on LAist 89.3. We're continuing our conversation with this week-long series on military veterans on how veterans find camaraderie and purpose after they've served and what we all can do to help close the divide between those who have served, that 6% of the population, and the 94% who haven't. I'd like to hear your experience at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Kimball in Corona said, I served 12 years in the military. I believe having a mandatory draft will assist with the many divides between civilians and those who've served. That's Kimball in Corona. I think we've got Victoria in Long Beach on with us again. Victoria, I'm so sorry we had to interrupt your comments talking about being a Navy veteran. Please just pick right up with that. Hello. Um, thank you for having me on. Um, but I was in the Navy for five years, and I got out in 93. And, you know, whenever you go and apply for a job, and you still as a veteran, you have all this experience. And then when you go into the civilian world, they, don't, they look at you like, but what else do you have? And I found it. I had a little difficulty moving from the military world over to the civilian side. So I guess from within, you know, I, I decided to go back to college and everything. I went to college and now I'm working, but I do understand that gap. And I think if the civilian side, which I think they're improving now because I got out so long ago, that they're welcoming veterans more and more and more. And I think if the civilian side knew some of the backgrounds that, you know, some of the things that military people have done, it would kind of, some of those skills can come over to the civilian side. Yeah. That's how I feel. And I think some of us who are older, Victoria, because we have family members who served going back to when there was a draft. You know, my grandfather was in the Navy in World War II, so I had a sense of, of the importance of that in his life. And um, my uncle was drafted during the Vietnam era. And I, so I, th- I think, you know, for many of us, we grew up with the understanding that military service provides um, something very important to people's lives even if the experiences are negative they are they are formative and i wonder victoria if you feel like that's kind of something that we're missing i'm hearing that what you're saying people didn't see the value of all the military experience that you brought to the job market right that's correct everything that you're saying we're on time we're never late we're i believe we just have value but the civilian side just never seen that um, the company I work for now, they've seen that and they hired me because of my background. They even hired me for my uh, 
for the degree. They hired me from my military background. That's interesting. And and what so what was the reason for that? What what were they looking for that your military background provided that was a good fit for your job? Um, I can't really tell you. Oh, okay. Really All right. <laughs> or you'd have to kill me. We don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> right, Victoria? <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much. We can guess. Thank you. I appreciate your call. Terrific uh, joining us, sharing a veteran's experience. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at 18comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Rob, in the Mid-Wilshire District, I understand you come from a military family as well as being a military veteran yourself. Um, your thoughts, please, on, on the theme of today's conversation. I, the bridging the gap between the larger community and the 6%, which is, you know, 6%, a lot of those 6% are from second and third generation service members. Possibly the, the biggest... I think one of the biggest uh, parts of that gap between the larger community and the uh, service members is base consolidation. Used to be the service was organized with lots of bases all over the country, um, and people were integrated into those communities. Now, if you think about places like San Francisco, L.A., base closures, base consolidation, Military is sort of self-segregated into uh, military towns. They call them like uh, Fort Hood or whatever. Yeah. And at the end of the day, okay, when people put on their civvies and walk out the gate, okay, they're leaving behind their residence. They're leaving behind their community. They're leaving behind their grocery store, the commissary, and they're on kind of on their own. Um, and perhaps. Uh, uh, there should be a greater effort to assist the military to have the expense, be able to forward the expense of living in the civilian community instead of being, you know, behind the wire. Rob, do you feel uh, a gap between your family, which I understand you have a dozen members, including yourself, who were in service, um, versus families where they don't really have anyone who has that experience? I see the gap this way, all righty. Folks in our families and immediate relatives and so forth who uh, were either ship handlers or aviation aviators who had skills that they could just walk out the door and, you know, people were looking for them to, to pursue something they loved. There wasn't very many, much of a gap, much of a gap at all. But for uh, family members that were, Kind of like frontline inventory, uh, frontline inventory, infantry. Um, there, there was some gaps. Their kids had the same sort of sense of mission and camaraderie. Either joined the service or went uh, into jobs in nursing and so forth, that where people really had a focus. But for people who didn't have that skill set, where they could have like a community in the workplace, yeah, I think there was. Uh, isolation. There definitely was a sense of isolation with an inability to relate. 
Rob, I so appreciate your call. And I appreciate you bringing up the point about the consolidation of military bases. That's something I hadn't even thought of. And of course, that's going to have a significant cultural effect because of these mega bases and and that are, you know, their own cities, essentially. That's Robin Midwilshire, 866-893-5722. Jack in Riverside, good to have you with us. Please share where you found a sense of purpose and the kind of camaraderie that you'd had in the military. Uh, thank you for having this show. Um, I, I was in the infantry in the Army in the 1970s and did not really expect to find the same kind of camaraderie after I left, but I found it on a wildland fire crew. And, you know, I, I think the military really depends on that camaraderie to get the mission done. And so I I did not really expect to see that in the civilian world. I could imagine it's it's there similar in um, for a peace officer, but a wildland fire crew is um, very similar to being back in the infantry, including the the brotherhood and camaraderie. That makes sense. And, you know, we know a lot of military veterans go into law enforcement, and uh, I would assume that that's similar in uh, firefighting as well. Did, did you find that you were among a, a fair number of veterans on your fire crew? Um, I was the only one when oh, I was really? in. That was the early early 1980s. But I see um, on social media and elsewhere that the the fire services, um, wildland fire service, are are actively recruiting and organizing veterans crews, and I think that's a great thing. Jack, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. 866-893-5722. Tim in Redondo Beach. I understand you're a Vietnam veteran. What was your experience after you got out of uh, the military? Well, it's, uh, the military service actually gave me my entire career, basically, uh, because when I got out, I was in. I first time I, I was in the draft mix as my uh, another brother that I had was as well, and uh, I ended up uh, joining the Air Force and became a survival instructor or a SEER, survival evasion resistant in escape today. So. And I ended up getting out after four years from, I was in Southeast Asia to the Philippines. And I went to college and that was a good transition because there were several veterans around at that point. But it has to be, it wasn't a good time to be a military veteran uh, in the 60s like that. It was, uh, there was just so much going on on college campuses and the thought of the Vietnam War. And that was a pretty troubled time for all of us in that mm-hmm. area. And then I tried after I first started going to school, and I found out from high school I wasn't a very good student, but it certainly changed my life when I started in college. And then I tried to, uh, uh, I, I got married and uh, tried to sell real estate, and that wasn't going very well in Seattle, particularly with Boeing laying off a lot of people. But I started teaching survival again to the civilian community, to uh, community colleges and parks departments, and some military and some government organizations. And I've actually been doing that. Uh, for the last uh, almost 60 years now. Oh, Tim, that's, that's great. <laughs> so that obviously <laughs> give, that. gives you a sense of purpose. I mean, that's obvious by, oh, by doing that work. Well, uh, how did yeah, you, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, how did you find the, the, the social connection that you'd had when you were in the military? Well, the military social connection is, is just upon you because you're living with people all the time. And then you're in tough situations a lot of times. Uh, with a different fellow crew members, and I was teaching pilots and air crews. I'm sure Kyle, uh, Kyle Rizdell went through that. If he was an aviator, he said yeah. in the Navy, I heard that. Uh, and so he knows a little bit about the Navy SEER program as well. Uh, but it was really good. And it, was, it was a really good tight area, and, and I'm lucky because 
the survival instructors from the past, particularly the Air Force, because it's a career field, even though the Army and Navy have the same thing, but they're not necessarily trained for a career in it like the Air Force is. And there is a SEER association today. They have reunions every couple of years. Uh, there's new newsletters, and people stay pretty close to each other in that area. Plus, I ended up working with several other people on a contract with Customs and Border Protection that came out of the Air Force right. uh, as survival instructors. And so I've been pretty involved with that all together. And I'm lucky today. Yeah. I'm still teaching corporate aviators. They're required by the FAA to go through crew member safety uh, safety training annually, and I, 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 I've been doing that for the last 16 years and don't plan to stop anytime soon. Such a through line, Tim. I really appreciate you sharing your experience, Tim, in Redondo Beach. Thank you. Alex in Pasadena said, having served in the military, it gave me a better understanding of the varying personalities and people that make up this country. Alex, I, th- I think that's a really important point. I'm so glad you raised that before we conclude uh, this portion of the program, because um, that is something that, you know, particularly when there was a draft, and I'm not advocating for that, but it did bring a wide cross-section of people in. And uh, so the more that you get to meet your fellow Americans who come from very different parts of the countries, have different cultural backgrounds, uh, that's a very positive thing as well. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for these terrific calls and for sharing your thoughts about that transition from military service, finding camaraderie and a sense of purpose after serving, and also some of the ways that we can close that gap between those who've served and families who have multiple service members and those who haven't. Coming up on Air Talk TV Talk, we do this every Thursday. We've got a pair of great critics who are going to be with us sharing their thoughts about uh, new episodes and new shows. When we come back, just a reminder, tomorrow at 10, it's Film Week. I'll be joined by critics Manuel Betancourt and Andy Klein, and I'll be back with you in just 90 seconds. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us for what's the biggest conversation in Southern California. I love when we have these topics like our series on veterans and all the wonderful calls that we get from listeners. I appreciate it so much. It's Thursday, TV Talk, one of our most popular segments, and we're so pleased to have joining us once again, Danette Chavez, editor-in-chief at Primetimer, and Ingo Kang, who is TV critic for The New Yorker. Uh, Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Let's start with The Curse, uh, comedic drama starring Nathan Field. Emma Stone. 
Stone and Benny Safdie. Fielder and Safdie are the creators of the series. Ingu, please tell us what you thought of it. This is one of my favorite shows of the year. And, you know, this is now we're in November time. This is a lot of when the networks are putting out their very best shows in order to in order to get on those like best of year lists. And I think that this list, this show is going to be on a lot of those lists. It's a bit of a hard show to summarize. Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone play a married couple. And if you think that that is weird, the show also knows that that is weird. They're playing a couple in New Mexico who are trying to get their own HGTV show. But they're also sort of aware that their show might also cause gentrification. And so they're trying to figure out how to offset uh, that while selling these really high-end, really ultra-sustainable houses in a pretty undesirable neighborhood. And then at the same time, Nathan Fielder's character, Asher, is convinced that a little girl has cursed him. And wouldn't you believe it? There is something about creating a TV show that is going to strain a marriage. Uh, Who would have thought? um, We were talking last hour about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Who would think that would be the case? Um, Yeah, I just love the premise and putting all these different social issues into the mix, sustainability, gentrification. uh, and, And so is it genuinely funny? You know, it's a drama. And I will say here that Nathan Fielder was like the biggest surprise in a lot of ways because he is, you could say, sort of playing a variation on himself, but he is not playing a version of himself. He is really acting. Emma Stone, I personally love when she is in the throes of a desperate, petty want, like in The Favorite, and she's doing exactly that here. You start out the show thinking that her character is going to be the idealist, the one who has her head in the skies and just doesn't care about money, and she just wants everyone to get along and he's sort of like the guy who's greedy and venal and a little too stiff and there's a great focus group scene where everyone's like what is wrong with that guy and you have to wonder wait is that like from fielder's own actual experiences and then as the show goes along i think the really great surprise of it is that you see how she has a really hardened self and he has a lot more softness in him that than you would think capable We're talking about The Curse, which airs on Showtime and streams on Paramount+. Plus. It'll be uh, premiering tomorrow on Paramount+, Plus, then airing Sunday on Showtime at 10 p.m. There'll be a total of 10 episodes of The Curse. For All Mankind, the Apple TV Plus series, which provides an alternate version of 1969 in which the Soviet Union beats the U.S. to the moon. Uh, Joel Kinnaman and Ren Schmidt are the stars of the series, which comes from sci-fi veteran Ronald D. Moore, Matt Wolpert, and Ben Nadivi. Danette, what do you think of this fourth season of For All Mankind? You know, it's kind of funny to think of this as one of the elder statesmen in Apple's lineup, but it's one of the first shows that Apple launched with. It's one of like five or six shows that it launched with in 2019, and it's the only one of those shows that's still on, um, which kind of says a lot about the state of streaming. Um, and I, But I see why Apple hung on to it. I think as a tech company, they probably think their mission is in line with the way the show um, because it's, you know, kind of, it's, it, it's like 
uh, the gentlest sci-fi in a way, um, but it you know it really tries to find answers to socioeconomic socioeconomic issues. Sorry, through technology, which is you know all very noble. What I'm sure a lot of tech geniuses believe that they're doing, um, and you know it's it's competence porn. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of my colleagues call it a dad show over the years because it's well acted, it's visually striking. Um, people really just work like you know they're they're yeah. not passing they're not just walking and talking like it's it's very soothing but then the last third of every season it's like you know they, they really they, they hit the the the, uh, the gas pedal you know um, I'm trying to think of the the pertinent uh astronaut term um <laughs> but you know they 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 really blast off in those final episodes um and you know, uh, it above above all else, you know, with someone like Ronald D. Moore working on the show, it's it's very optimistic. You know, again, thinking that technology can provide answers, even though in real life we see how often, um, you know, how many people are kind of left out of those uh, solutions. Um, I've always loved the show's optimism. The longer I watch it, the more I feel like it borders on just plain old naivete, but. The re what brought me back in this fourth season is that it is now unabashedly a soap opera in space. Like it, some of the storylines are things that you might have seen on like old National Enquirers. Really? Wow. <laughs> and, you know, in like the supermarket, you know, checkout lane, like, oh, there's an openly gay Republican president. There's a, you know, a 40, 40 something year old actor buried under really silly prosthetics and a wig playing a 70 year old. Um, there's a Martian baby. There are people trying to chase down asteroids. Um, you know, the, the show never goes full on. Like, it, it, it doesn't dip fully into the silly. It's never, like, completely absurd. I think, you know, above all else, it wants to retain this noble tone. And, you know, I'm, I'm still into that. Uh, yeah. I, I can't wait to see how it wraps. Um, which will obviously, you know, uh, be a while, but uh, it's it's kind of changed course. I, I feel like it's much more squarely in soap opera territory. Okay. And I think that there's absolutely room for that right now in the TV landscape. We're talking about For All Mankind with its fourth season premiering tomorrow on Apple TV+. Plus. There'll be a total of 10 episodes of For All Mankind. Fellow Travelers stars Jonathan Bailey and Matt Bomer, the series created by Ron Nicewainer. Uh, Ingu, what do you think of uh, Fellow Travelers? At the risk of repeating myself, this is also <laughs> one of my favorite shows of the year. Yeah. And it's the one I am the happiest to be proselytizing, particularly because I think it's a little bit under the radar. It doesn't have an Emma Stone in the cast, you know. Um, it stars Matt Bomer and Jonathan Bailey as these two men who find each other in the 50s. And it takes their characters who end up engaging in this closeted relationship all the way to the 80s during the AIDS crisis. I know that means that it sounds sad, but there is so much life in this show that I think it sort of like overwhelms everything else. Um, it is steamy. And also there is just a very unique love story here because I think with every on-screen romance, what you really need is a kind of like push-pull. Are they going to go for it? Or are they not going to go for it? And I think the really interesting push-pull here 
is that there is one character who is just completely undeserving of the other because Matt Bomer's character, Hawk, um, lovely mid-century name, is just a jerk. And yet he is sort of the best chance at happiness for Jonathan Bailey's Tim, who starts out as a McCarthyite. And over the years, as he sort of like thinks more and dwells on what he wants his legacy to be, uh, you know, ends up being an AIDS activist. This uh, show also starts, I think, in a pretty novel setting, which is the Lavender Scare of the 50s. I think a largely forgotten chapter of American history, while McCarthy was rooting out uh, communist sympathizers, he was also at the same time trying to rout gay men and lesbians from a federal service, from government service. And so because both Tim and Hawk are government employees at one point, they have to really try to figure out a way to not get caught up in this uh, net that just sort of seems to be getting rougher and larger. And if... <laughs> I'm going to be a little jokey about it. The first few episodes reminded me a little bit of Survivor. Okay. Uh, the reality show, yeah. someone has to be sacrificed. And it's a lot of the really smart strategic players here trying to decide which of their own to throw under wow. the bus to save their own skin. You know, I had never heard before that, you know, everyone sort of knows that Roy Cohn, who was Joseph McCarthy's sec uh, right-hand man at the time, was gay. Apparently, Joseph McCarthy, there were also gay rumors about him. And that's really sort of the starting point of the show. There are these gay men who feel like they have to persecute other gay people in order to stay alive, in order to get the sink off of them. And so that sort of creates a ripple effect across the entire DC gay community. Wow. I mean, all the themes that are, does it evoke a sense of place strongly? I have been to DC once, so I can't say that I know that for sure. I think that it. And you're probably too really... young for it to know if it evoked the time or not. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but... I wasn't alive in the 50s. It's true. Right, yeah. But I think it does have a really great sense of historical sweep. You know, they sort of allude a little bit to the Vietnam War and the assassination of Harvey Milk and the rise of gay rights over the years. You know, they're sort of this uh, sense of what Fire Island means and what San Francisco begins to mm -hmm. mean and the rise of the term gay and is that okay? And I think that what's really interesting is that Hawk, Matt Bomer's character, decides he's actually just going to stay in the closet the whole time. And I think that's one of the reasons why this romance, even though it just completely pulls these two people together, can't really fully work out because he just refuses to give up the perks of heterosexuality. We're talking about the Showtime and Paramount Plus series Fellow Travelers, the romantic drama starring Jonathan Bailey and Matt Bomer. Uh, it's uh, uh, available, uh, first two episodes out now, third episode releases tomorrow on Paramount Plus and Sunday airs on the Showtime network. There'll be a total of eight episodes. When we come back, we'll hear from Danette about Pact of Silence, a Mexican drama which is streaming on 
Netflix. We'll also uh, hear about Everyone Else Burns, uh, and that's a British comedy starring Simon Bird and Cato Flynn. You're listening to TV Talk segment of Air Talk on LAS 89.3. We'll be back with more reviews from Ingu Kang and Danette Chavez in just a moment. NPR's Here and Now coming up momentarily. And of course, tomorrow at 9 o'clock, Air Talk hosted by Austin Cross as he hosts on Fridays. And then I'll be with you at 10 o'clock for Film Week. Right now, our TV Talk segment. Uh, we're joined by critics Danette Chavez of Primetimer, where she's editor-in-chief, and Ingu Kang, TV critic for The New Yorker. And Danette is going to tell us about the Netflix series from Mexico, Pact of Silence, starring Camila Valero and Jose Manuel Rincón, uh, that's created by Jose Vicente Spataro. Danette, what did you think of Pact of Silence? You know, I always have an eye on Netflix's international releases, not just for the breakout shows like your Squid Games, your Lupons and Money Heist, but because I'm interested in the storytelling approaches that other countries take. I think by now we all know that British shows are going to be very succinct, right, with a handful of episodes a season, one or two seasons per series. Um, Pact of Silence is giving U.S. Netflix users a crash course in soap operas. Um, I think most people expected, you know, a, a, maybe a 10 hour binge. It is 18 episodes. Um, it has so, so much story. I could not begin to sum it up. Um, but as I began watching it, you know, I, I, I didn't even look at the episode count yet. As I watched it, I realized that it was less like Money Heist, which is a Spanish drama on Netflix. It's one of its most popular shows ever. I think they're launching a prequel soon. And more like uh, this Latin American soap opera called Queen of the South uh, that was remade uh, by USA Network here in the US a couple years ago. Um, it was fascinating to watch people reacting to it on Twitter because they were complaining about the Byzantine plot and uh, what I like to call smell the fart acting, where there are just like a lot of flared nostrils and wide eyes, people coming in and out of rooms at inopportune times, uh, someone being cut off while you know making some huge revelation. But you know, I think it speaks to kind of a generational divide really because these are things I'm so used to having grown up watching the daytime soap operas you know like all my children general hospital and also Latin American soap operas which burn through plot and you know release yeah. five episodes a week and you know and again you know having watched both of those I'm used to something like you know all my children going or no general hospital is the one that i think recently hit 60 years it's amazing. and then something isn't that wild and it's then you have like these latin american soaps that will run for about 150 episodes episodes which sounds insane now but those are 150 episodes in something like three months 
And so I was fascinated by the response because it just shows, I think, that younger viewers are not attuned to those rhythms. You know, they're they're not used to some of those tropes, which, you know, is, is good and bad, right? Like on the one hand, you know, some of that hamminess, it, it's probably better that, you know, you're offsetting some of that with uh, more prestige dramas. And I'm not going to pretend this is an especially good show, but it is ridiculous in the best way. <laughs> and I think that... You know, I mean, there's there's one central question to the show that could be answered with just a little bit of science borrowing from For All Mankind, and this woman just refuses to do it because revenge is more important uh, than answering her question, really. Um, But, you know, it's been fascinating to watch the response to it. Um, And, you know, I just, I think with more people rediscovering the weekly episode drop i think it's also just a good time to get you know a a lesson in soap opera storytelling pact of silence is streaming on netflix all the episodes are streaming now we're getting tight on time but we have a couple of other shows to talk about Uh, everyone else burns is a cw show also streaming on the cw app it's a british comedy starring simon bird and kato flynn dylan mapletoft and oliver taylor created the series. Inku, briefly, what'd you think of Everyone Else Burns? This is just a really modest but really incisive comedy. It is actually the opposite of what the net was just describing. This is six 20-minute episodes. You will be done through it in the blink of an eye. It is (laughs) about a doomsday cult that this family in Manchester is stuck in. And they are sort of slowly starting to realize how it is corroding their relationships with one another. And yet at the same time, they feel so stuck in this that they don't really quite know how to escape its most pernicious effects. And yet at the same time, it is a comedy. And I really have feel like I have to like iterate that part because I feel like a lot of these, you know, our cult entertainments right now are very correctly, sensitively portraying these really abusive dynamics. But I think coming at this from a more lighthearted angle, a more character-driven angle, really offers you something different. Everyone Else Burns, the third episode of the season, is out tomorrow. It airs at 9.30 on The CW, which is Channel 5 in Southern California. And finally, the Paramount Plus streaming Colin from Accounts, an Australian comedy starring Harriet Dyer and Patrick Bramall. they're married to each other, created the series. Danette, I need like one sentence on this. Okay. This show proves that Paramount Plus is not just Taylor, Sheridan, Lamb. <laughs> all right. Very good. Colin from Accounts, all eight episodes released today and are streaming. My thanks to our critics this week, Ingu Kang and Danette Chavez. Danette, a primetimer where she's editor-in-chief, and Ingu from The New Yorker where she's TV critic. Have a terrific rest of your day. NPR's Here and Now is next. And actually, Julia Paskin is hosting 9 o'clock tomorrow. Austin is off. So Julia will be in. And in fact, she'll be talking about women in the military. That's for our final day of our five-day series on veterans. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment. Vidiot and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is L.A. history. 
Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.